Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me today is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Jessica Destiny from the law firm Carter, Convoy, Case, Blackmore, Maloney, and Laird in Albany, New York. Jessica is a director with the firm and provides clients with insurance coverage analysis and litigates coverage disputes. She is also a member of Alpha International and DRI. We're pleased to have you with us today, Jessica. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. And today's topic deals with insurance coverage matters in New York and underinsured developments impacting the insurance industry. Brandon Noonan leads off today with our first question. Jessica, can you define some insurance? Sure. The term SUM, it's S-U-M, stands for Supplemental Uninsured or Underinsured Insurance. Although these terms are frequently used interchangeably, they're really distinct terms, which insurers, insureds, and counsel should know. The term uninsured is used when there's a motor vehicle accident and the other driver, who's presumably the tortfeasor, has absolutely no insurance. The term underinsured is used when that tortfeasor has insurance, but it's insufficient to cover the damages of the insured making a liability claim. So supplemental underinsured insurance, or some insurance, as I'll refer to it from here on out, now kicks in from the insured's own policy to fill the gap between the tortfeasor's insufficient policy limit and the sum insurance limit of the insured. Some insurance is basically coverage that the insured purchases to protect herself in case she's injured in an accident and the other driver's coverage won't make her whole. Now, some coverage in New York is specifically covered in our Code of Rules and Regulations at Regulation 35D. This provision, including specifically 11 NYCRR 60-2, outlines within the regulation the policy requirements that cover both uninsured and underinsured issues, resulting in some. The regulations outline the necessary conditions for compliance and trigger of some coverage, including timely notice, a policy limit offer from the tortfeasor, the claimant, which here is the insured's, some limits exceed those of the tortfeasor's policy, the claimant obtained the sum carrier's consent before settling with the tortfeasor, as well as more basic requirements that the claimant qualifies as an insured and the loss arose from an accident as defined by the policy. So these requirements must necessarily be satisfied to allow the claimant insured to receive some benefits from his insurer. What are some of the recent developments in underinsured insurance in New York State? Well, Brendan, for example, we'll take the policy limit offer. Condition 9 of the sum endorsement requires that policies, other policies must be exhausted by judgment or settlement by payments to other persons injured in the accident. So the Court of Appeals in New York, which is our highest court, addressed the tortfeasor's policy limit offer and its effect on obtaining some limits in June of this year in a case that really combined two cases, Allstate Insurance versus Rivera and Clarendon National Insurance versus Nunes. In each case, the insured driver and passengers were struck by another vehicle. The insured sum policies and the tortfeasor's liability policies each had $50,000 in coverage. In each case, the insureds and their passengers settled with the respective tortfeasors for their relevant policy limits of $50,000 per policy. After submitting claims for some benefits from the insured's policies, both Allstate and Clarendon National advised that the tortfeasor's $50,000 liability policies were an offset to the sum coverage of $50,000. There were no sum benefits available, even though no one insured received the entire $50,000 policy of the tortfeasor. Now, the Court of Appeals affirmed the lower court on this issue based on the longstanding idea that the sum insurance was established to allow policyholders to acquire the same level of protection for themselves and their passengers as they purchased to protect themselves against liability to others. 
Under the sum endorsement's definition of an insured, which includes a passenger, the claimant is not an other person whose payments may be deducted for purposes of rendering the tortfeasor uninsured or underinsured and triggering the sum coverage. Therefore, all of the passenger settlements were added together in each case to determine that the $50,000 sum coverage was matched by the cumulative settlement payments, so no sum benefits were available. Now, another example of recent interpretation dealt with the insured's need to obtain the consent of the sum carrier before settling with a tortfeasor. Condition 10 requires written notice if a tortfeasor has offered his or her policy limits. The sum carrier then has 30 days to either consent to the settlement or to agree to tender an amount equal to the tortfeasor's policy limits directly to the insured and accept an assignment of the claim by the insured against the tortfeasor. The claimant has to wait 30 days before signing any release or risk jeopardizing the conditions precedent to the sum coverage. So what happened was there's a question of what happens if there's two or more tortfeasors of coverage. In the case of arbitration of Central Mutual Insurance and Beverly Bemis, which was affirmed by the Court of Appeals this year, there were two tortfeasors. Ms. Bemis, as the insured, told her sum carrier about the first offer, didn't get a response, so she accepted the tortfeasor's policy limits. That's fine. However, she did not tell the sum carrier about the second offer and acceptance until after it was already done, so her sum benefits were denied. The court took paragraph 10 of the sum conditions to find that once a tortfeasor's policy limits are exhausted, an insured may pursue her sum benefits. This statement did not allow Ms. Bemis, however, to properly settle with one tortfeasor, only to settle with another tortfeasor for less than his limits without approval by her sum carrier. Basically, the first procedure is not a pass for the second, as that would impair the rights of her sum carrier. All of her sum benefits were denied because she did not comply with the terms of her policy. Now, Jessica, have there been changes to New York's insurance law to impact its long-standing no prejudice rule? John, there certainly have been changes. And as you mentioned, New York State was one of the last, if not the last, state which implemented a no prejudice rule and late notice issues. If a claim was presented in an untimely fashion, an insurance carrier could deny the entire claim based on the insured's late notice without having to establish that the carrier was prejudiced at all by the delay. Now, although New York is no longer truly a no prejudice state, it's only taken some baby steps away from this rule. In January of 2009, Insurance Law 3420C2 was created, which requires a showing of prejudice by the insurer to deny a claim based on an insured's late notice of a claim if notice is provided within two years of the claim or incident. If there is more than a two-year delay, the tables turn, and the insured is required to show why the insurer was not prejudiced based on the delayed notice. This change was only implemented for policies issued or delivered on or after January 17th of 2009. So we're going to be waiting for a little while to see what happens. Now, this could certainly be a topic for another podcast, perhaps, once the courts have had an opportunity to address the impact of this new legislation. Now, interestingly, the no prejudice rule, as related specifically to some insurance claims, was changed previously by case law to require that an insured must forward suit papers, and these are really the papers for a suit being commenced by the insured as against a potential tortfeasor, they have to forward those suit papers immediately under Condition 4 of the standard sum endorsement. In 2002, the Court of Appeals found, in the case of Brandon versus Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, that an insured's failure to provide this timely notice of a suit can result in forfeiture of some coverage, if the carrier can demonstrate that its rights were prejudiced by the delay. In the later Reckemeyer case, the court found that where the insured had timely advised her carrier of her no-fault claim, but provided late notice of her claim for some benefits, the insurer must show prejudice by late notice of some when it already had information from no fault. So far, how have the courts interpreted these changes? Well, the courts have interpreted this new carve-out 
from the prior no prejudice rule for some coverage very differently, which is obviously leaving us a little confused. Uh, New York State has four judicial departments, and they don't seem to completely agree on how to interpret these changes. So, for example, in January of 2009, the third department, which is where my firm is located, was arbitration between Liberty Mutual and its insured Frankel. Now, Frankel was involved in a car accident. Three weeks later, his counsel notified Liberty Mutual of the accident, provided medical expenses, lost wages, and the fact that he was seeking no-fault benefits under his policy. The letter also advised that if their investigation revealed that the offending vehicle was not insured or was underinsured, they were reserving their rights to pursue some benefits under the policy. More than two years later, counsel advised Liberty Mutual that he was in the process of settling a lawsuit the insured commenced against one of the tortfeasors for the limits of the tortfeasors' policy, and that Frankel intended to seek some benefits. This notice was Liberty Mutual's first notice, however, that Frankel had commenced an action, so benefits were denied. Now, the court found that Frankel failed to comply with the provisions of the policy that require prompt notice be given of any third-party litigation or claim for some benefits. It also found, however, that Liberty Mutual was not prejudiced in a meaningful way by the delay since the insured had already provided the police report, notification that the insured would seek some coverage if necessary, and Liberty Mutual failed to demonstrate that its ability to investigate the circumstances surrounding the accident or to protect its interests was compromised in any way by the delay. Now, this decision goes along with the Brandon case and the Ruckemeyer case I already discussed. But then later this year, in April of 2009, the second department decided Travelers versus Cohen. Now, Ms. Cohen was injured when she was forced to jump out of the way of a car driven by Mr. Salvati on December 23rd of 2005. She didn't have any contact with her insurer or Salvati's insurer until October of 2006. She had actually obtained an attorney in September of 2006. In October, Cohen gave notice to her insurer, which is Travelers, of a potential sum claim, which was denied based on late notice. When she received Salvati's insurer's denial of coverage, she sent it on to Travelers and advised of her intention to pursue a sum claim, which was denied. Now, the court found that Cohen did not exercise diligence in attempting to ascertain the insurance status of Salvati's vehicle from the date of the December 2005 accident until she contacted an attorney in September of 2006. The court found that notice was untimely and the denial was proper. Now, the court also stated at the end of the decision this statement. Contrary to Cohen's contention, under the circumstances presented here, Travelers was not required to demonstrate prejudice. No further explanation provided. So this decision seems to contradict the Frankel case, as well as the Brandon case from the Court of Appeals in 2002, without really any explanation as to why it does so. There's no word yet on whether this matter is going to the Court of Appeals, but we're keeping our eyes open. Jessica, how do you see these changes playing out, and how important is the communication process between law firms and insureds? Well, Brendan, we're really trying to rely on the courts at this point to come to a consensus on the timely notice issues surrounding some insurance. Now, the Brandon case was from 2002, and yet there still seems to be some confusion as to when the insurance carriers are required to show prejudice by a late notice and when they're not. Because of this confusion, the communication process between law firms and the insureds as their clients is imperative, as is the insured's obligation to keep the sum carrier in the loop. Counsel should be obtaining as much information as possible from the insured as early as possible at all levels of coverage to ensure that the initial notice of a potential sum claim is made immediately. Although this initial information must come from the insured, obviously the insured's counsel is really in a better position to stay on top of the deadlines and requirements since counsel will most likely understand the necessary reporting procedure and the ramifications for failing to comply with it. The moral is advise the sum carrier every step of the way 
So there's no doubt that it had timely notice that a potential sum claim was in the works. Jessica, are other states watching these New York matters with interest, and do you have any comments and predictions on where this will lead? Well, John, it seems that other states do watch New York's developments with interest, especially since on late notice issues, we really were pretty much the dinosaur as far as policy. It would certainly be easier for larger insurance companies, which provide coverage to insurers over many states, to know that the same rules apply for late notice in each state. But this is still not the case, so we're still being watched. Now, my prediction is that although the changes made to late notice issues in some and now in third-party claims were made to lessen litigation and strife on these issues, at least initially, more litigation will follow until the courts have provided some specific examples of what they will agree constitutes prejudice for an insurer. Since we really haven't had this requirement, its limits need to be tested. There's also hope that as Insurance Law 3420C2 gains momentum, the courts will rule more uniformly on the notice requirements for some cases as there will be a better general understanding of the requirements to show prejudice and what qualifies as prejudice. Okay, thank you very much for joining us today, Jessica. Sure, it was my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, thanks. That was Jessica Destiny from the law firm of Carter, Convoy, Case, Blackmore, Maloney, and Laird in Albany, New York. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 